There is a British tradition that the Queen's flag flies from Buckingham Palace only when the Queen is in residence. And likewise, joy is the flag that indicates that King Jesus is in residence in the palace of our hearts. The presence of Jesus always brings joy. But at times, that joy is tempered with sorrow. The message of Philippians is that the flag of joy often flies at half-mast. The joy of the Lord is present even in the midst of trials and heartbreak. A believer's joy isn't dependent on happy circumstances. In tough times, there's still a joy to be had. Philippians is about joy at half-mast. And it's amazing that this letter on joy begins with two guys in jail. Chapter 1, verse 1 reads, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. It's the year 62 AD. Imagine Paul, he's in a Roman prison, awaiting his day in court before the evil emperor Nero. Whether he lives or dies is about to be decided. It could go either way. Well, the book of Philippians is one of four letters, along with Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, that we call the prison epistles. They were written during Paul's incarceration in Rome. Paul is behind rusted bars, yet he is brimming in joy. This is joy from a jail cell. But I want you to also imagine this morning a doctor diagnosing a cancer. And yet in the midst of it all, God has given you a peace. Your boss has just handed you a pink slip. But you still know that God is in control. Your friend has died in an accident, but you're sure he's in a better place. Again, we can have joy even in the midst of terrible situations. Joy at half-mast is the theme of Philippians. And how to experience that joy in the midst of any situation is the secret that is revealed in its chapters. Well, Paul writes to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. The town of Philippi was in the region of Macedonia in Greece. It was one of Paul's initial stops after sailing across the Aegean Sea from Turkey. Acts 16 recounts the birth of its church. Philippi was the first Christian assembly on European soil. Well, he writes to all the saints with the bishops and deacons. Bishop means overseer, deacon means servant. These were the two categories of leadership in the early church that helped the pastors. The bishops or the elders concerned themselves with ministering to the spiritual needs of the church, whereas the deacons were the designated doers. They served the physical needs of the fellowship. And to all the church, Paul writes... Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. My daughter Natalie had twins. She had a boy and a girl. And I love how she informed the family. When we cut into her cake, half the slice was pink and half the slice was blue. The two colors made up the one slice. And this describes the gospel. It's a slice of blessing in two colors. Grace drew Jesus to the cross. Peace now reigns in its aftermath. The gospel is all about grace and peace. And then verse 3, 
I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. One of the reasons Paul could rejoice or take joy in any circumstance was that he was totally confident that what God had started in his life, God was sure to finish. You know, I'm notorious for starting projects that never get finished. I have jobs that just kind of keep rolling over to the next honeydew list. You know, it just keeps going. But I'm not the only one, by the way. Michelangelo was a genius. He was a sculptor. He was a painter. His statues of Moses and David are among the world's masterpieces. And yet, did you know there is an entire museum in Florence, Italy, that's dedicated solely to Michelangelo's unfinished works? That does me a lot of good. (laughs) But not so with our Lord Jesus. For what Jesus starts, he finishes. I know you might be discouraged this morning. Maybe you've tried and failed, but I want you to take heart. Because Jesus hasn't begun his work in you to leave you high and dry. He doesn't abandon us in midstream. He intends to hang in there with you, so you hang on to him. Jesus has no unfinished projects. Well, verse 7. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, Inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And I love this statement that Paul makes of the Philippians. He says, I have you in my heart. Paul's life was full of joy, and here's one reason why his priority was people. Not stuff, but people. Paul wasn't concentrated in concern with the clothes on his back or the roof over his head. There's no joy in those things. His life revolved around the friends that he held in his heart. At a retirement party, a fellow made the statement. He said, as I look back on my career, my fondest memories are not of the money I made or the goals I accomplished, but the relationships I formed. And I think we all can identify, as Paul said to the Philippians, because I have you in my heart. This is what makes the world go round. You know, life gets joyless, not when we go through tough times, but when we have to go through them alone. The road is hard, but don't let it get lonely. Keep people in your heart. And Paul prayed for his friends, and this is what he prayed. This I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Now, as your pastor, I have a very real fear that the more you get to know me, the less you'll like me. What happens when they realize I'm not the perfect pastor? That I get grumpy. That I make mistakes. Getting to know me is risky business. This is why to experience joy, it's crucial that we fix our eyes on Jesus and nobody else. For Jesus is the only person of whom it can be said, 
the more you get to know him, the more you'll like him. For Jesus has no downside. Jesus is thoroughly cool. Remember this, when you pray for someone, all that keeps a person from falling head in love with Jesus, head over heels in love with Jesus, is getting to know him better. The more you get to know him, the more you love him. Our love for Jesus abounds as we grow in our knowledge of Jesus. And thus Paul says that you may still more and more grow in knowledge and discernment. And then Paul also prays that you may approve the things that are excellent. You know, it's easy to choose good from bad, but it's much more difficult to pick out the best from the good. You know, when you first become a Christian, God calls you to clear out the evil and replace it with what's pure. You make choices between good and bad, between right and wrong. And those choices are pretty clear cut. But God wants more for us. Not just good things, but the best life can offer. You know, it's been said, the good is often the enemy of the best. Good things can crowd out the best things. We all need to pray for the discernment to pick out the things that are excellent. He says that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Pray for a lingering, lasting sincerity. You know, in every Christian's life, there's a gap between what we are and what we should be. That's true of you. That's true of me. And our goal should be to shrink that gap. But over time, many people ignore the gap. Or they become content with where the gap is. Or they deny that a gap even exists. Paul prays that God will keep the Philippians on the cutting edge of their commitment. That they won't grow dull to either where they're at or where they need to be. He prays that they'll maintain a sincerity about their faith. And then he prays in verse 11. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In other words... Pray that your life will be stamped with God's fingerprints. Hey, when they dust you for prints, does God's prints show up? Hopefully they do. Fruits of the Spirit like love and peace and joy and good works are the evidence that God's hand is upon our lives. And so when you pray for me, pray that my love for Jesus abounds as my knowledge grows. That I'll be able to discern the best from the good that I'll stay sincere, and that the fingerprints of God will be found upon my life. You pray that for me, and I'll pray that for you. Then verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Now here's another reason Paul rejoices in difficulties. God is in charge. God saw to it that Paul's prison time would advance the gospel. God turned Paul's imprisonment into a platform. He was able to preach now to the Roman guards, to the officials that were in the Roman prison, maybe even to his other prisoners. God saw to it that Paul's prison time advanced the gospel. You know, God turned Paul's imprisonment into a platform. It gave him the opportunity to preach to the whole palace guard. You know, most of us would have been bummed out to be thrown into prison. We'd moan and whine and probably accuse God of abandoning us. 
we need to retrain ourselves to view our inconveniences as God's opportunities. Cliff Barrows was Billy Graham's right-hand man for 60 years. But it's interesting how they first teamed up. Barrows and his newlywed bride were on their honeymoon. They'd scraped together just enough money to buy a few train tickets and some hotel reservations. But when they reached their destination, the hotel where they were supposed to stay had closed down. They managed to find a vacant room above a grocery store. Well, the next day, the owner of the store heard Cliff playing Christian songs on his trombone. He told him about a rally that was being held that night. A young evangelist named Billy Graham was in town. Barrows and his bride went. That particular night, the man in charge of the music didn't show up, and Cliff Barrows was asked to help. And, of course, the rest is history. But what seemed like a disaster was for the furtherance of the gospel. Hey, when you're delayed or when you get sidetracked, perhaps God could be rerouting you. Always look for God's hand in those situations. And it'll bring great joy. Verse 14, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's boldness had inspired other Christians to come out of the closet and be a witness. If Paul could witness from behind bars, then, hey, we can do it out in the open. He says, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Paul knew that this sudden rash of Christian witness was coming from a mixture of motivations. Some of the preachers were truly inspired by Paul. If Paul can preach in prison, we can preach in the public market. Other figures, though, they were, had sinister motives. They were thinking, well, while Paul is out of commission... Maybe we can make a name for ourselves. While Paul's in prison, this is our chance to increase our popularity. But notice how Paul responds to this, verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. You know, realize Paul is not suggesting that motive doesn't matter in ministry. 1 Corinthians 3 teaches us that it's not just the quantity or quality of what we do for the Lord that matters. It's the motive behind that determines our reward. God judges the heart of the minister. The right motives are a must for God. But it may not be that important to the person receiving the ministry. For when the pure gospel is preached, people come to Christ, even if the preacher's motives are suspect. Isaiah 55 verse 11 reads, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is powerful, and one of the proofs of its power is its ability to shine despite some of the shady people who preach it. Sadly, not every pastor has the best of intentions. You remember God spoke through Balaam, Uh, to Balaam through the mouth of a donkey. Just because God chooses to use a person to share his truth doesn't mean he's placing his stamp of approval on everything else going on in that person's life. 
It just means that God loves people and he'll use even a donkey to save them and heal them if necessary. Well, Paul continues, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul knows that if the Philippians pray, the Lord Jesus will bring deliverance. But Paul has a goal in mind more important than just his release. For he says in verse 20, According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Far more important to Paul than his deliverance from jail was his witness for Christ. His earnest expectation and hope, in other words, his utmost desire, was not to buckle under to the fear of death or the pain of torture. Paul hopes to shine brightly for Jesus until the last ray of light is extinguished from his candle. He says whether he lives or dies, his goal is to magnify Jesus. It's his earnest expectation and hope. And then notice what he says. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I love how that line reads in the Living Bible. It says, to me, living means opportunities for Christ and dying. Well, that's better yet. Here's why Paul could take joy in any situation. All that mattered to him was Jesus. See, Paul had put all his eggs in one basket. Jesus wasn't just a piece of the pizza in his life, a slice of the pizza. No, he was the cheese that covered the whole pizza. Jesus is the big cheese. Hope he is for you. Everything else in Paul's life gained significance only as it related to Jesus. Jesus was all that mattered to Paul. Even Paul's survival paled in comparison to his magnification of Jesus. If he lived, he could be used for God's glory. If he died, he would get to see Jesus face to face. You see, you can't lose when Jesus is all that matters. In the movie, The Wind and the Lion, Sean Connery, he plays the Razuli. He's the leader of the Berber bandits that fight to resist American and Western imperialism in the deserts of Morocco. At the end of the movie, his army gets trounced. And in the final scene, he and his right-hand man, they're on horseback. They're riding on the beach. His sidekick mourns. Razuli, we've lost everything. All is drifting on the wind, just as you said. We've lost everything. And with a roguish laugh, the Razuli replies, and I guess you should just hear it for yourself. How about that? Great Razuli, we have lost everything. All is drifting on the wind, just as you said. We have lost everything. Sharif, is there not one thing in your life that was worth losing everything for? did you hear what he said ah is there not one thing in your life worth losing everything for what if I ask you that question this morning does your life have one big overarching purpose that dwarfs everything else if you're a Christian you should 
There's a cause that transcends even life and death, Paul says, and that is to magnify Christ. Let me ask you to fill in the blank. To live is, how would you answer? To live is work or success or friends or kids or sports or sex or hobbies or popularity or security. Really? Work that lacks fulfillment? Success that's only temporary? Friends that come and go? Kids that grow up and leave you? Sports you can't play forever? Sex that leaves you empty and unashamed? Hobbies that grow boring? Popularity that's fickle? Security that's an illusion? Are these things really worth your one and only life? Listen to Paul's words again. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Paul would go anywhere. He would do anything for Jesus. No sacrifice was too great. And ironically, no one lived a fuller, more satisfying, more joyous life than Paul. And in verse 22, Paul is weighing out his options here. He says, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. In other words, it's going to be heaven or it'll be to help. You know, death would be heavenly for Paul. He would go and see Jesus. But to live on meant more opportunities to magnify the Lord. You know, I'm not sure you can really live life to the fullest until you're first ready to die. You know, for Paul, heaven was just around the corner. Whatever he endured on this earth was as bad as it would ever be for him. He could do that for Christ's sake. He said, and being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. After thinking it through, Paul was confident that he would be released, that he still had some work to do. He says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul's confident he's going to visit the Philippians, but he wants to find them in good state. Paul is like a father encouraging his children to make him proud. He wants them and us to stand fast, stand together, and to stand up for the gospel. I like this word translated striving here. It means to speak of an effort that drips with blood, sweat, and tears, that goes beyond exhaustion. Paul's saying, you need to leave it all on the field for the gospel. I used to play high school football. And in retrospect, high school football is a pretty dreadful sport. You practice five days a week for 16 weeks just to play 10 games. You endure a sweltering summer, rigorous exercise, the risk of getting injured, and for what? There's no pay, and there's very little recognition. Why do high schoolers do it? It's because when everyone pulls together and the gun sounds, there's a joy that swells up inside. For even if your team doesn't always win, you still have belonged to something greater than yourself. You've been a team. You've worked together. You've accomplished something. 
It's that sense of unity and accomplishment that's worth the sacrifice. And I think this is the joy that we find in church. You come week after week. You give an offering. You serve somewhere with little or no recognition. You put up with the heat of conflict. You run the risk of getting hurt. And why? Because when it all clicks and God gets magnified in a big or in a little way, there's an incredible joy. You're part of a team that's bigger than yourself. There's a fulfillment there. You've accomplished something of eternal significance. Well, joy comes when we stand fast, when we stand together, and when we stand up for Jesus. And when we're due, when we do, we're not afraid. Verse 28. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. I'm not sure the Philippians saw persecution as an honor, but Paul did. And this is the truth I think the modern church fails to to take heed. We claim prosperity as the birthright of the believer. Faith should make our lives easier, not harder. But that's not what Paul taught. Paul said to suffer for Jesus' sake is also a reason to take joy. Suffering is as much a badge of honor as is salvation. Well, chapter 2 begins, Therefore, If there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, and in Christ there is an abundance of all the above, joy comes not from our circumstances, but from Christ's work in our heart. Our comforts are not situational, they're spiritual. And since God is working in you, Paul encourages the church, fulfill my joy by being like-minded having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. If there's these consolations in Christ, well, then the least that we should do is live together in peace and in unity with one another. Years ago, there was a small rural community that met to decide the name for their village. But differing opinions surfaced and tempers rose. The meeting became contentious. Finally, someone pounded the table and they shouted, Let's have harmony! And his words just sort of hung in the air. Finally, someone suggested, hey, I like that. Why don't we name this place Harmony? And the name stuck. It's been Harmony, Minnesota ever since. You know, we're going to find out later in Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, that all was not well in the church in Philippi. Some sisters were squabbling. There were other problems. And here Paul is in essence shouting out, let's have Harmony. Let's focus on Jesus and be of the same mind and the same heart. He said, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And here's a wonderful formula for harmony in a church. Put aside selfish ambition. Esteem each other. Seek to serve rather than just be served. And where would you get such an idea? Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, 
who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Jesus is our model. I love the Phillips translation of verse 5. It reads, For he who had always been God by nature did not cling to his privileges as God's equal, but stripped himself of every advantage. Jesus was God, but he stripped himself of the advantages of being God. He became fully human. The word translated made, it means emptied. He laid aside his clout and his privileges of being God. When Jesus became a man, he didn't stop being God, but he emptied himself of his divine advantages. We're told Jesus took the form of a bondservant. The Greek composer Leonard Bernstein, the great composer Leonard Bernstein, was once asked, What's the most difficult instrument to play? He replied, Second fiddle. Anybody can be first violin, but it takes humility to play second fiddle. Jesus deserved honor and pleasure and glory, and yet he laid aside all of that to work out a salvation for us. And then Jesus came in the likeness of men. A few years ago, I ran across a description of what life would be like in America if our next president were a dog. All public buildings would have a doggy door. The title Mr. President would become, Here, fella. The Washington Monument would be replaced with a 100-story fire hydrant. And then my last one, I love this one, a new law would pass requiring everyone to drive with their head hanging out the window. If the next president were a dog, you'd have to become a dog to understand his policies and embrace their relevance. And likewise, for God to grasp the ethos and the passion and the feelings of the human predicament, he had to become a man. Jesus was God in human flesh. The Almighty God got down on our level. He identified with our struggles. In Christ, he let us know just how much he cares. And then verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man. Notice when God came to earth, he took a Y chromosome. He became a man, not a woman. Jesus is the man that all men were meant to be. And here's his greatest act of masculinity. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This is history's manliest moment. God's strength was on display throughout the Old Testament. But on the cross in Jesus, God revealed his humility. What made Jesus the man above all men wasn't that he could dish out pain and enforce his will. What we often think of as masculinity. No, true manhood is when you can endure pain to accomplish God's will. Jesus was capable of costly obedience. This is the mark of a real man. And then verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the end, God, humble, God exalts the humble, and he'll start with Jesus. For the one who descended so low will be exalted to the highest, 
every knee will bow to our Lord Jesus. Hey, either you'll bow your knee willingly or he'll bow them for you. But in the end, every knee bows to Jesus. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. See, here's Christianity in a nutshell. We work out what God has worked in. You know, you and I are never required to work for or even work on our salvation. You remember Jesus' final breath was, it is finished. God worked for us and worked in us on the cross. His spirit plants in us new desires and new dexterity. God works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. But what God works in spiritually, we then are called to work out practically. We apply these new desires that God gives us to our everyday life. God has a part and we have a part. It's been said, man can do nothing without God and God will do nothing without man. You could say God revs up the engine but then we let off the brake and pop it into gear. God puts in you the life of Christ. Then you take on the mind of Christ. God changes me, then I change my mind. This is working out your salvation. Believe deeply and seriously, then start living out what you believe. And then verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Boy, do all things without complaining and disputing. Once differing battalions of Maryland firefighters from neighboring counties, they arrived at a burning house simultaneously. It was unclear as to which battalion had jurisdiction, so a fight ensued over which crew was responsible for putting out the fire. And as you can guess, the house burned to the ground while the firemen fought. This is the story of too many churches today. We argue with each other while hell rages on. Paul continues, he says, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You know, everywhere people gather today, squabbles erupt. I think the most obvious way for Christians to stand out is for us to simply get along. May there be peace in our churches. We need to shine, and we shine brightest. Verse 16, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. And here's the best way to preserve our unity and to stay like-minded. Keep our nose and keep our hearts in God's Word. Stay in the Bible. Hold fast the Word of life. He says, Yes, and I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. You know, in the Old Testament, the drink offering was poured out on the sacrifice to soften it and to season the meat. Once it was applied, of course, it was no longer seen. It was absorbed by the meat. And the only one who appreciated its taste was the one who ate the sacrifice. Well, spiritually speaking, the Philippians were the sacrifice 
And Paul was the seasoning. He was the steak sauce, the meat tenderizer. He willingly poured his life into the Philippians with no desire for recognition. He didn't even mind if God was the only one who tasted his contribution. And I wonder, is that the kind of influence that we want to have on each other? Do we tenderize? Do we add flavor to one another? And do we do it so that only God notices? We all need to be A1 servants of the Lord. How about that? Well, God continues in verse 19. Paul continues in verse 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Timothy knew Paul's heart, and Paul trusted Timothy to represent him well. He says, For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. And sadly, Christian ministry attracts more than its share of inflated egos, people who seek their own. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. In the early church, Timothy was a known quantity. Paul had led him to Christ, and Paul had sort of been a spiritual dad to Timothy. He could be trusted now. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Paul will send Timothy, but he hopes that he too will be released and he'll be able to visit Philippi soon. Verse 25. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Now understand, in the Roman prison system, if you ate or if you were clothed, it was up to your friends or family on the outside. There was no such thing as a guaranteed bed in a prison suit and color television and three square meals. No, when you were thrown into prison, if the folks on the outside forgot about you, then you went hungry. Well, apparently the Philippians had sent Paul provisions through this messenger named Epaphroditus. He says, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. While Epaphroditus was in Rome, he got seriously sick. And notice this, Paul, the great faith healer, was powerless to help his buddy. Epaphroditus' illness was not the result of sin in his life. We know that. He got ill while doing the will of God. I think we all need to realize that despite what some Christians say, Christians are not immune to sickness and disease. God has left us in a fallen world, and he's left us in fleshly bodies. We're subject to the effects of sin. Sometimes God chooses to heal, but sometimes he doesn't. And here, Paul, he doesn't lay hands on him and pray for his healing, no. He he prays for Epaphroditus, but he leaves it up to God. Epaphroditus' recovery was not credited to some miracle or some gift of healing. Paul says God had mercy on him. And then the chapter closes. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. 
Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness. And hold such men in esteem. Because for the work of Christ he came close to death. Not regarding his life. To supply what was lacking in your service toward me. You know sometimes what we think are simple tasks end up the most threatening. Epaphroditus was just a courier. His job was to carry supplies to Paul. Simple enough. Yet he almost died. The distinguishing trait of Epaphroditus is that he persevered. He finished his mission. And you know that, that in and of itself is being like Jesus. When we finish a mission. Remember what it was said of Jesus in chapter 1 verse 6. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus. And in that we can trust and take great hope and great joy.